Welcome to the Headless Thinking Podcast. In this episode, we will cover the topic of magic and philosophy. For future episodes and other updates, please find the links in the show notes below. When we think of philosophy, we won't think of magic. Uh, magic is considered to be the opposite of a mind engaged in logical thought processes. Practicing voodoo isn't something a rational person would do. A modern philosopher would take distance, publicly at least, from anything that would be associated with the practice of magic. But this hasn't always been the case. Our modern day world didn't get rid of magic either. It's still very much present. In our digital age, and especially during the pandemic, we've all been bombarded by fake news and might know a few people who are convinced of some strange theory that explains the confusing times we're in. Conspiracy theories are actually the first intro of people into a magical reality, where secretive powers are battling it out over control, mostly behind the curtains and with the world as its price. The author Peter Lavenda says the following, There is in fact little difference between the worldview of an occultist and the nagging fears of the conspiracy theorist, except that the occultist has a more positive approach to the material, seeing in the activities of sinister forces that influence world events, as well as personal ones, the possibility of reversing the process through an act of will, coupled with knowledge of technique. So, where conspiracy theorists might be paralyzed by fear, and assume the control of those in power is total, a magician or occultist would try and find ways to interact with or counter the activities of such powers. Conspiracy theories are in a sense the magical out of place. It's a bit of a dysfunctional way of creating a myth to explain reality. The intuitions might be on point though, a very small number of them turn out to be true. Conspiracy theories spreading like wildfire in modern times is kind of a phenomenon worth noting. The modern, educated class that is loyal to the dominant ideas would blame the individual and his personal shortcomings for not being fully on board with the ruling narrative. It's not as easy as naming a bunch of socio-political and psychological factors, actually. The fact it's is that it's a phenomenon that's spread among every possible group. Shows that it speaks of an inability of the larger overarching worldview, let's call it the whole modern paradigm, to fully account for all that we are feeling and all that is happening. So this paradigm fails to captivate enough of the people under this new sky of meaning and for them to be fully engaged with it. In many ways, it seems like the worldview we inherited from previous centuries, the modern centuries that is, is not up to the task and knows attention that is caused by a lack of concepts to explain events and things properly. Let's just say that mythologies are not reversals. Mythologies like the ones we see now with conspiracy theories, which are kind of like modern mythologies in a sense. They're not actually reversals. There is no fall back to a primitive state here of fairy tales and fantasies. We aren't losing our high-tech modern-day level of complexity or high development, when we see people reach out for myths and start having such seemingly wild musings, right? If anything, it shows that our worldview is not adequate enough and people start making up their own meaningful stories as a way to compensate for a perceived lack. Myths are no bedtime stories for a childish and undeveloped mind. Same for conspiracy theories. A mythology is a tool for creating relationships, for both material and spiritual relationships. And as such, the relationship-making tool, they're not available, even on the internet, which is supposed to be all about connectivity. Peter Sloterdijk, one of the leading living philosophers, even says, Today we need mythology, not philosophy. 
So the fact that a modern educated class of people would cringe at the thought of involving themselves with myth and magic is actually something relatively recent in response. This is something that you don't see back in the ancient days. It's something more of a status thing now, you might say, where people would be invested in claiming that they would not that they would not reach such mythical, magical interpretations of events in reality. We just have to look back only a few centuries in modern times to see that this is not the case. Even the founders of modern rationalism and scientific inquiry, they took their dreams as seriously as a shaman would from the Stone Age or a priest during antiquity. The American ethnobotanist and philosopher Terence McKenna tells us the story of Descartes. On the night of the September the 16, 1619, René Descartes had a dream. And in this dream, an angel appeared to him. This is documented by his own hand. And the angel said to Descartes, The conquest of nature is to be achieved through measure and number. And that revelation laid the basis for modern science. René Descartes is the founder of the distinction between the res verens and the res extensia. The founder of modern science. The founder of the scientific method that created the philosophical engines that created the modern world. How many scientists working at their benches would understand that an angel triggered modern science? So this inspiration that Descartes had triggered by this angel, an unconscious burst of creativity, right, is still an event we haven't fully deciphered yet. What is inspiration? Where does it come from? In previous ages, people saw it as coming from the muses or the gods. In modern psychology, inspiration is not frequently studied. We don't know where exactly it comes from and how it comes about, but we've all been struck by it. It's outside of the context of this discussion now to talk about the origins of inspiration. The main point here is that the heroes of modern science and philosophy were not the champions of atheism or irreligion, or held an exclusively materialist point of view. So let's put that aside, because we might be the one who are making some crucial thinking errors here. Platonism is always described as a philosophy or having started out as a philosophy, before it turned more religious with stuff like Neoplatonism. Plato held the view that abstract concepts are actually real and exist outside of time and space. They're more real than the world of matter, the world of the senses. As such, true reality is not found through the senses, as the senses only give us access to the material world, not that world of the ideas, of the true forms. The world of these abstract concepts we access through reason is perfect and is referred to as the world of being. The second world, the material world again, is the imperfect world called the world of becoming. So while things just are in the world of ideas over here on this side of the grave, things just become, they come and go. So the last world is where everybody is stuck in except for philosophers, who through theory and practice can manage to leave this world. There are some who claim that Platonism have might been a cult too, like the cults of Lysis, Orpheus, and Dionysus, and many others. Cults in ancient Greece were widespread, and one had to become an initiated member in order to learn their secrets. Of course, very little of what these cults taught has survived, so a lot of guesswork has to be done to get to somewhat an outline of their beliefs and practices. The attraction ancient people had to these cults seemed to have been for the mystical awakening it offered and a complex systematic religious doctrine that the more public religion might have not offered. It gave a map of the afterlife, offered the opportunity for communal worship and a sense of spiritual brotherhood, 
So if Platonism actually had an occult dimension to it, just like these cults, then the philosophy of Plato we can read was more like the outside layer, the outward shell, rather, of something that was an initiatory tradition. A tradition you would only know about if you were properly initiated into the mysteries. It is similar to what Vajrayana Buddhists in Asia claim about the Buddhist teaching. They say there was also an oral tradition next to the Pali Canon. They say there's next to all the texts that we now have and that we can now read of Buddhism. There was also a tradition, a line of initiation that goes back all the way to the Buddha and that is not written down, but given from student, from teacher to student. Into this oral tradition, that which was not written down but taught in secret, you had to be initiated and only through practice would you be able to realize the teachings. Not through mere acceptance of doctrine, not through just memorizing a whole bunch of texts. Greek philosophy also started with face-to-face -face debates. It didn't start on paper, it started in actual conversation. That's why Socrates himself never wrote anything. He was too busy talking to people. Instead of a whole theoretical work, Plato too made his writings a set of dialogues. When you read Plato, you are reading debates between people. So he too had not left the talk either. The talk happened on paper. It had not turned into an abstract bunch of trains of thoughts taking off. As such, a lot of Plato's ideas weren't even his. They were the result of years of debate between himself and others, but most likely also of him having heard others mention such talks and the conclusions they reached. His crowd of people seemed steeped into a world in which a lot more things happened than just pure rationalist thinking. It was a world in which people were initiated into many different traditions. In the text Critias, for example, it is obvious Plato is talking about Egyptian initiation into the mysteries at Sais, where the story of Atlantis was revealed to Solon, and then goes to mention other people in earlier texts who were initiated into the cults of Demeter, maybe even the cults of Orpheus. It's really eye-opening to see how often the Greeks went to Egypt with this as their main goal, to be privileged to know the mysteries that were carefully transmitted from generation to generation. They were no stranger to this land, but very familiar with the environment and welcomed it. Since Pythagoras, there has been a suspicion that many Greeks are deep initiates into Egypt's mystery religion. Centuries after Plato's writing, Neoplatonism became a dominant force in the late ancient intellectual world. But many scholars, like Jeffrey S. Kupperman, they now point out that this whole Neo part of the name is only really useful for classifying visible changes. Such categories say very little about what these people devoted to such ideas thought about it themselves. So-called Neoplatonists simply considered themselves to be Platonists and didn't feel like they were adding anything new, but were only explaining in more detail their position. Nevertheless, for the first time we see how Platonists, that is the Neoplatonists, make no secret about their focus on theurgy, meaning divine working, and which might as well just be called magic. In the Neoplatonic text, the Chaldean Oracles, it is said that those who practice theurgy do not fall under the fate-governed herd, in other words, their life is theirs, and not one at the whims of fortune, like the rest of the masses. Proclus, a Neoplatonist, says about theurgy that it is a power higher than all human wisdom, embracing the blessings of divination, the purifying powers of initiation, and in a word, all the operations of divine possession. So, the goal of theurgy is to reunite with the divine. It's a process known to them as kenosis, especially with Iamblichus, we get more than the contemplations on theurgy of the founding figure of Neoplatonism, Plotinus, but a whole arsenal of practices we get with him. We get magic, actually. 
So this is not only adding a whole new different flavor to Plato's philosophy, but it might suggest that platonic thinking is compatible with magical practice and initiation. Initiation happened in all cults of the world of antiquity. Magic itself through the ages is nothing without initiation, and it is also sterile without practice. So if Plato was just a man of theory, the Neoplatonists definitely added a whole new dimension to it, or were, for the first time, revealing it openly. If modern rationalists consider Neoplatonism to be a type of degeneracy, a fall into the obscure from an original, logical, and reasonable set of teachings from Plato, they do well to remember that Plato never disavowed or distanced himself from the magicians of his time. Although one needs to make a slight nuance here, not all magic was considered to be equal. Goetia, for example, is known to most as a medieval and early modern magical system and practice, but is at its root of Greek origin. One can't talk about practical Western magic without mentioning the Goetia. It goes back to Plato's time, where it did have a bad reputation for being associated with necromancy, that is, the dealing with spirits of the dead and all the gods and demons associated with it. Practical magic for and by ordinary people always had a bad rap. The reasons for this are pretty simple, as such systems are the least cleaned up and are much harder to clean from the perspective of the ruling classes within any society. You cannot spoil practice as much as you can spoil ideas. So Plato himself was kind of still an elitist. Well, he was not kind of. He was pretty much an elitist. We, and we can read this clearly throughout one of his texts, The Republic. He desired a political system in which true aristocratic values would rule again. And in such a world, whatever ordinary people engaged in, like with the Goetia, that would of course be considered of a lowly quality, right? But regardless of Plato's judgmental attitude towards magical practices by the common folk, the magic of established priest cults was legitimate for him. Let's not beat around the bush. Greek philosophers consulted magicians and took occult practices seriously. It is a lost but perhaps crucial part of the whole history of Western thought. And in this sense, knowing oneself, the topic we dealt with last time, isn't just a thought exercise, it's a discipline and a science, as we've established. And it seems like magic played a crucial role in that quest. We mentioned inspiration and the muses before, right? Like with Descartes, his weird dreams that inspired him to do mathematics a little bit differently or more earnestly. Well, the god Apollo, to whom the temple of Delphi was consecrated to, was the leader of these muses and therefore ultimately responsible for art. Next to the god of art, he was the god of archery, music and dance, truth, prophecy, poetry, healing, the sun and light. Apollo was also someone who came to be associated with philosophy. Last time we suggested a strong link between the wisdom of Delphi and the father of philosophy, Socrates. And indeed, Plutarch calls Apollo, the god of Delphi, the god that above all things is the lover of truth and claims also that Apollo is no less philosopher than he is a prophet. So Apollo was explicitly and frequently associated with many famous philosophers. Diogenes Lartius says that the followers of Pythagoras, from whom we get our first math classes, actually considered him Plato incarnate. Diogenes goes on to say, his bearing is said to have been most dignified, and his disciples held the opinion about him that he was Apollo, come down from the far north. We are also told of course, the only altar at which he worshipped was that of Apollo, the giver of life, behind the altar of horns at Delos. In Plato's Phaedo, we read that Socrates wrote a hymn to Apollo. 
Indeed, in Phaedo, Socrates describes himself as the consecrated servant of Apollo. The link between Delphi, Apollo, and philosophy couldn't just be more obvious. There was a whole tradition, again reported by Diogenes Larchius, that Apollo appeared to the philosopher Plato's father in a dream foretelling his son's birth. Plato's birth happened to fall upon the very day the priests of Apollo, on the Isle of Delos, claimed Apollo himself had been born. Last time we spoke of the 147 ethical maxims derived from the cult of Apollo, which survived thanks to a book of quotations from earlier sources, compiled in the 5th century AD, as the Anthology of Stobaeus. Most of Western philosophy started with this, as its arsenal, to build the entire temples of reason on it. As we said, the god Apollo was associated with archery and music. What do these two have in common? Well, to shoot the bow and play the lyre, the strings of both the bow and the lyre, an ancient harp, need to be tuned properly. If they are too tight or not tight enough, neither will work. So both instruments symbolize Apollo's symbolic association with beauty and the notion of health being achieved through harmony and moderation. Of course, this also applies to rational thinking. Apollo was known to speak in riddles through his priestess the Pythia. For this reason, the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus said of Apollo, the Lord whose oracle is at Delphi, who neither reveals nor conceals, but gives signs. Plutarch says that Apollo actually intentionally creates such intellectual problems or riddles for us. These are intended to stimulate our natural love of wisdom, and as such help us pursue philosophy and truth. In other words, he wants to make us think. Plutarch says of those maxims in Delphi, how many philosophical inquiries have they provoked? These ancient maxims are like seeds, he adds, from which countless arguments have grown over the centuries. So here, philosophy back then seems to have been more of a religious cult, with the god Apollo as its main god. The priestess of Apollo in Delphi wasn't the only one that Socrates inspired to commit to his philosophical journey. Socrates mentioned it was a priestess, Diotima, who taught him about demons and how love, Eros, is not a god, but rather a great demon. Here it is Socrates himself making known that his insights are again from a priestly origin and not his own rational reflections. Diotima then explains that everything demonic is between divine and mortal. She describes demons as interpreting and transporting human things to the gods and divine things to men. In Plato's Apology of Socrates, Socrates claimed to have a demon too that frequently warned him in the form of a voice against mistakes but was never telling him what to do. This very much sounds like the Socrates we have learned about so far, someone who is asking but not answering. This too shows again a strange connection to magic that is understudied in Western philosophy. Socrates, considered in modern times as this paragon of objective rational thought, well, he heeded an unexplained sense that gave no logical basis for its promptings. So was the demon a hallucination or does it illustrate for us a peculiar problem in the exchange of the conscious and unconscious mind in making decisions? For instance, could this relate to a recent suggestion that human beings have two parallel minds? A verbal analytical left brain and a non-verbal intuitive unconscious right brain? There are practical reasons for us today too to study Socrates, his demon. During the course of any day, we frequently experience inner voices of doubt, caution, and hesitation. The modern Platonist Paul Elmer Moore called it the inner check. To learn about and reflect on Socrates' demon, we may be better at managing similar activities within our own psyche. Maybe learn to develop a relationship with something similar that can inform us behavior in a similar fashion. 
Platonists, Stoics, Cynics, and many other philosophical schools saw Socrates as the one who lived life to the fullest. And this Socratic understanding of ourselves as an idea, which in turn, and in all actuality, comes directly from the magical oracle of Delphi and its god, Apollo. To conclude, it isn't a huge leap to claim that the seed of Western philosophy, being initially and primarily about the pursuit of wisdom, saw its start in the magical and holy city of Delphi, devoted to the god that is all about such pursuits. The seed got planted inside of the father of Western philosophy, Socrates, and inspired him to go out, explore and realize what knowing yourself truly means and how it is essential to life. He held what was being taught there close to his own heart. His examined life came from a magical tradition. He lived magically. As a demon helped him ask the right questions and re-examine all the problems of thinking and doing, he not only mastered himself to the very end of his life, but made an imprint on the world that make him a topic until today. Just like René Descartes, with whom we started, who heard the intermediate spirit of the angel tell him how to tackle the problems of science, so too Socrates heard the voice of a spirit, as he shared at the end of his life, telling him his duty is to be a philosopher. He said that at his trial, during which the accuser cited two blasphemous acts by Socrates. These are, failing to acknowledge the gods that the city acknowledges, and introducing new deities. Not only his constant questioning of the commonly held beliefs of society would result in lots of hatred aimed against him, but this is also where the whole demon part of the story would cause the hostility of his society. So that's this new deity that caused his city Athens, a democratic city of all places, to turn against him even more. What the author and podcaster Gordon White said about magicians seems to perfectly apply to Socrates as well. White says, Herd bias is an unbecoming trait in a magician. One does not meet the devil at the crossroads to build a life that looks like everyone else's. And Socrates, he met a demon too, and built a life that definitely did not look like everyone else's. It sadly enough became his end. If we are going to be true philosophers, our fate seems very much the same as that of a magician. We don't need to mention the witch hunts from a few centuries ago to illustrate that point. Your life will probably not be on trial, like Socrates' life ended up being, but you will face opposition for your ideas, and the choices you make, to a degree, you won't if you think the thoughts of others and imitate what others do.